Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We are closing our July-August issue. Today will be out available on the interwebs uh, today and tomorrow. Our first piece is up by Brett Stevens on the paradoxes of Benjamin Netanyahu. We talked to Brett, of course, on Monday uh, about the um, the passing from power of Benjamin Netanyahu and maybe temporarily, and what his legacy is. Uh, this is one of the best issues that we have ever produced. We have an amazing piece by Liel Leibovitz on what's called the White Jew Lie. Uh, we have a piece by the uh, great soccer commentator uh, and Men and Blazers host Roger Bennett on growing up um, as a Jewish boy in Liverpool in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, we have... Um, an amazing piece by Seth Mandel on the cravenness of the Anti-Defamation League in facing down the anti-Semitic comments of Democratic lawmakers. Uh, book reviews by Jamie Kerchick on Ben Rhodes. Uh, ben Rhodes' is a book uh, is a big bestseller, and uh, Jamie takes it apart uh, with the dexterity of a great surgeon. Uh, Eli Lake on, on, uh, on Philip Agee, the turncoat CAA uh, agent, uh, uh, Ron Radosh on uh, a new book on the Rosenbergs that continues to proffer myths about communism in America. Abe, what else do we got? We got so much good stuff. Nelson Riddle, Terry Teachout on Nelson Riddle, the greatest arranger of the 20th century. Uh, Christine on unions. Christine on unions and Bob, and, and Bob Pondicio on critical race theory and it's, and, and why it will be hard to extirpate it from from curricula, uh, and so much good stuff. Oh, and Jim Meggs on the lab leak hypothesis and how, and how it was suppressed and how it, uh, you know, how it uh, came roaring back. Rob Long on, uh, the AT&T merger. It's just, uh, I'm very proud of the issue and it's just so much to read there. Go to commentarymagazine.com tomorrow and a lot of it will be up, or at least be up by Friday. few free reads. We ask you to subscribe. This is the issue to subscribe for, as well as to help defray the costs of this podcast. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I made a call to uh, listeners uh, to ask them what you thought of our going five days a week. And uh, as, as I told you, we had this uh, very heartening response from hundreds and hundreds of you they still keep coming in and there was a particularly interestingly interesting one that came in yesterday much later uh from a a listener named josh i'm not going to use his last name because i haven't cleared this with him but um josh uh, uh took exception uh to some of the things i said yesterday which i want to get to but i want to just read read this um uh i listen daily i even catch up when i get behind I have no commentary podcasts in the queue because I've heard every single one of them for years. I subscribe to the imprint monthly mailbox of my magazine 11 times a year, and I've got my Quip and my ExpressVPN. I enjoy the some slightly, sometimes greatly different perspectives that commentary provides compared to the bulk of my conservative media diet. We obviously don't know each other, but of course, after listening daily for over a year and twice a week for a long time before that, I feel like I know you guys. But in this non-relationship, I feel like there is an imbalance. Well, of course, there's an imbalance. I listen daily, and you've never heard from me before. That being said, if we really did know each other in person, there would be an imbalance, a situation in which I love you, but you're slapping me in the face, or at least John is. I often disagree with the perspective you guys share, but I love to listen and respect all four of you. I keep coming back because you make your case well, you're interesting, and it comes from a place of loving America and wanting to keep America on the right path. I accept our differences, and I even listen with an open mind to revise my thoughts when persuaded. But every once in a while, there is this abrasive blow that indicates that if we really did know each other in person, the acceptance and respect would not be mutually shared when our views diverge. I'm talking about when John tells me I should drop dead. I'm, I'm sorry, Josh. Really, "Drop Dead" by the way is a is a uh, Jewish shorthand for "I'm angry." Uh, I don't actually mean that you should drop dead. I just want to make that clear. I understand that sometimes that that may not really convey. I'm using a kind of slangy shorthand, but nonetheless, or says things like he doesn't care if unvaccinated people die. 
which I'm closer to. But anyway, I also think that embracing a two-tiered system of vaccinated versus unvaccinated people is not at all a conservative perspective. I understand you have very strong feelings on this topic, but can we discuss as if we are friends, not enemies who disagree, even friends who differ sharply on certain issues? I'm used to the daily disagreements. I'm used to hearing that people who disagree with you are idiots. But today, meaning yesterday, it rose to a higher level where I briefly thought, shall I continue to return for this kind of abuse? It doesn't get to this level very frequently, so it's not that I'm ready to say goodbye. I'm not so thin-skinned that I will turn out simply because of these rare instances. However, like I said, because I've grown to love and respect you guys, it almost feels like an insult from a friend. I know you think it's ridiculous for people to not want to get the vaccine for various reasons, and it's not my intention to write to make the case or explain the rationale that people have for having concerns, only to say that non-crazy, mainstream, normal people have differing reasons for not wanting to get the vaccine or have various concerns about tracking people based on their vaccine status, and these people are not idiots, and they are harming no one, perhaps rather than attacking and wishing harm to people, you could steal man their arguments and then address them fairly. I'm sending my no- this note to share my own feelings on this, to provide a little feedback. Perhaps others feel similarly, perhaps not. While it is the insults that prompted my letter, I want to take time since I'm already writing to you to say I greatly appreciate you all and think you're providing a great service. Please keep up the New York centrism. It is very intriguing to hear what is going on in America's largest city. Please keep growing our vocabularies by using words not part of common parlance. I appreciate the old-timey cultural references and interesting little anecdotes. Even the drinking game Tourette's-like repetitive phrases are fun and make one feel like they are on the inside of a joke. All the best, Josh. Now, this is one of the nicest letters I think I've ever received, and I want to make it clear that uh, this kind of uh, level of, of respect and high engagement uh, is uh, uh, is just astonishingly appreciated. And Josh, thank you very much. And I thought I'd gone too far yesterday. And I, I want to explain, but I want to get to what it is uh, about the, the the anger that I feel toward the non-vaccinated um, or that maybe we can explore this question of, of, of why, why, why it's angering. Um, because maybe it is irrational. Um, because of course, vaccination exists in theory to help the vaccinated, right? I mean, you get vac- you get vaccinated to to uh, prevent yourself from getting uh, something, and uh, and that's a that's your choice to prevent yourself from getting something. And why it should matter that other people do or do not get vaccinated uh, uh, is an interesting question. I would say that the very existence of vaccination as a cultural norm is one of the is one of the few things well it's complicated it let me just posit this it 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 causes a breach uh, a necessary breach in an understanding of society uh from let's say a libertarian perspective uh why it is that vaccination is a is a collective or communal social responsibility um, does does present a challenge to a certain type of highly individualistic thinking. Um, it does not present a challenge to conservative thinking because conservative thinking isn't conservative thinking and libertarian thinking are not coterminous necessarily. Libertarians can be conservative, though some of them aren't. Conservatives can be libertarian, although many of us aren't. Because we are communitarian, and that is particularly true of the relatively small number of, say, Jewish conservatives who come at conservatism from a more communitarian perspective, because Judaism is a communitarian religion, as opposed to sort of, you know, let's say radical Protestantism, which of course is itself a kind of personal relate. What matters is your personal relationship to God. That is not true of Judaism, which is a which is a religion of family and tribe, in which most Acts of prayer and 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 the and per pursuit of religious aims have to be done as part of a group. Uh, this is not something you are supposed to do individually. You can do it within the context of a group individually. There are moments in the in the prayer service when you pray individually to God, but you cannot have a prayer service without nine other people uh, to convene it. And so. Um, it's a weird perspective, and vaccination provides a challenge to hard libertarianism, which a lot of people, I think, confuse with conservatism. Christine, can you help me uh, sort of lay this out or expand on this point? 
I can, but in the interest of conserving things, I will be discombobulated unless I get to say hi, John, which I have not yet oh my been God, able I'm to so say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just ha- feeling wait, really did I not inter- Okay, so that's Christine Rosen. Did I not introduce you <laughs> hi, guys? John. I'm sorry. Right. And of course, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. This is oh, like one of those movies you. where they only have the credit sequence like 20 minutes into the movie. Or like when they had Monty Python, every now and then would run the titles at the end of the sh- the opening titles at the end of the show. I apologize. Go ahead. Okay, so I my one of my responses to that, and particularly to the letter that Josh wrote to us, which I agree was really very thoughtful and, and welcome uh, feedback, is that there actually are people who are trying to parse through the details of vaccination, not at the sort of abstract level of what is my duty to society, but at a much more granular level of is this safe for me and my family? And I've heard many, I've had many conversations with with friends who say things like, well, I'll get it as soon as it's authorized by the FDA. Right now it's emergency use, so I don't trust it for myself or my kids. So they're actually, they are, in the sense that he's saying there's there's some rational thought about this. I, I, I believe that because I've seen it. I know people who have who've been making that argument. But I do think that it's been one of the really uh, terrible, uh, terribly disastrous messaging failures on, on on the part of public health advocates. And we spend a lot of time talking about them and criticizing them usefully, I think. That community message was the one thing that I felt was missing. We had fear-based messaging. We had um, a little bit of an attempt at nudging, but none of it really came to... Uh, the communal based appeal that I think a lot of Americans, regardless of whether they consider themselves libertarian, conservative or liberal, find uh, useful to hear. It gives them a motivation for doing something that they otherwise might not be all that enthusiastic about. I'm an enthusiastic vaccination person. I'll go get all the shots. My kids get all their shots. I, I don't have a problem with it, but I do respect and understand that a lot of people are more hesitant. And I think that the lack of that sort of communal uh, appeal from our public health uh, uh, professionals as well, on top of that, a lot of their contradictory messaging is one of the reasons we, we haven't seen that be effective in this case. Um, I think I differ from you guys a little bit on this question in that I am not, I don't get particularly angry about people who don't want to be, get vaccinated, to tell you the truth. Um, they can do what they want. I think they're wrong. Um, and, I, and I think our responsibility to them as a larger society is greatly diminished if they if they don't take that step. Um, what I do get angry about is the anti-vaccine activism. That's what drives me crazy because um, it is, um, first off, it is a conspiracy theory and we have enough of those. Um, it is motivated, it is animated by a conspiracy theory that, that, that the whole point of the vaccine is to get us to, you know, is to corral us in some way, pick, pick your, Pick your enemy, you know, um, um, and also because um, it's annoying. It's it's it's, it's I'm sick of activism altogether. So you know, I don't, I don't want to hear from you. There no are one, some. No, no one is forcing you to do it. You're more annoying than people saying get vaccinated. <laughs> there are some throat clearing stipulations that I suppose we should make more often than we do, which are certain people can't take this vaccine. Certain people have latex allergies. Certain people are just simply, they have complicating health issues that don't allow them to do that. <clears throat> Other people, as I've written about for the blog um, a long time ago, actually, which is now becoming just apparent to public health researchers now, apparently, which is that it's a perfectly rational risk calculation to not have any urgency around taking this vaccine based on your relative community density your relative interaction with people. If you live in a, in a very rural place, you don't interact with people very often. Your risk assessment should be lower than people who live in cities. And that's perfectly rational and reasonable and should be accepted. Um, what we encounter, and there's overlap, unfortunately, in these demographics are people who have internalized, and this is perhaps liberal bubble stuff because we all consume the same media, um, but who have internalized very conspiratorial thinking around this vaccine, not just the nonsense around chips tracking you, but maybe some sort of bioluminescent serum that they use when you get an MRI that'll show, and I've encountered this from people, real live, actual human beings who have, who are just asking questions, you know, but, but who genuinely believe that there is some sort of a, an effort to impose on you a tracking system, which a vaccine passport system is the underlying fear of a vaccine passport system. And while it is conspiratorial, it is not antithetical to a conservative political outlook to believe that 
maximum autonomy means health autonomy and that the enemies of maximum autonomy on the left will do anything and everything in their power to break that down up to and including sorting people into categories like vaccinated and unvaccinated. And the pursuit of maximum individual autonomy is one of the glories of our, our, our political covenant that we shouldn't be disparaging, but we should be celebrating. Okay. Well, I, in a more philosophical sense, when I said that, um, uh, the need for a, a, a for vaccination to be a social a, a, a collective social responsibility is a challenge to libertarianism comes entirely with the concept of herd immunity and um, the great <clears throat> health advances of the 20th century that people many people now don't know about many people are unaware of because they took place many, many decades ago, and we don't talk about them enough because we don't talk about anything enough except the Real Housewives and, you know, <clears throat> Chrissy Teigen or whatever, um, is the eradication of diseases that killed millions and millions of people for thousands, if hundreds, if not thousands of years. Smallpox, polio, um, I think those are the two biggest ones, but there are others. <clears throat> smallpox has been eradicated. Smallpox killed millions and millions of people. Um, uh, and they were killed not just because people who chose to get vaccinated got vaccinated, but because it became a collective social responsibility to be vaccinated. And that if you create the conditions under which there are no hosts for these diseases... Uh, they are parasitical creatures, and they die off without something to attach to. And granted, a coronavirus is a slightly different matter. But um, when you say in 1955 or 1956 that everybody in America needs to take to eat a sugar cube with a polio vaccine on it so that nobody henceforth loses use of their legs from polio... Um, you are saying something that then has multi-generational virtue. It isn't just that you don't get polio. <clears throat> it's that polio goes away <clears throat> and your children don't get polio and your grandchildren don't get polio. And polio is a thing of the past. And we're lo looking here at a virus that has now killed close to 4 million people on this planet and that left unchecked can, you know, can alter itself and mutate and do this and do that and do the other thing and, you know, kill another 20, 30 million. Who knows? I mean, we don't, we have no idea how it dies out, whether it, how, what happens to it. Um, what we do know is that this miraculous thing happened that make, that makes its eradication possible. And your decision not to join in the effort to eradicate it is not an individual decision. So, it's it's a it's a conundrum that it's not an individual decision. I grant you that, and it flies in the face of what we believe about the autonomy that Noah is talking about, and it is one of those exceptions that makes a rule a rule, in okay, my but, view. But one of the, you make a very important point here that I think we we've overlooked, and that's that one of the ways that you that that kind of communal way of thinking and thinking about you know what's best for the group versus what's best for me individually is a shared history and a shared past. I was born in 1973, the year after they stopped giving smallpox vaccination. So all of my older relatives had that big scar, you know, from the smallpox vaccine left a pretty big scar on some people's arms. I didn't have to get it. And I remember when I was studying history as a child, being told a story, a miraculous story of vaccination about polio, about smallpox, which which actually felt sort of recent because my parents would talk about getting their vaccine. You know, there, there were stories people told. And the shared message of all of those stories was the one that we've been trying to emphasize with the current vaccine, which is what a huge miracle it is and what an extraordinary achievement. But I do think there's a tendency, particularly in America, to look forward and ahead when it comes to progress. And once we've made, you know, an amazing smartphone or a 
a particular vaccine, then we just keep going forward. We're always looking ahead. That's a huge virtue. But when it comes to actually appealing to communal standards and to try to get people to understand that there's a shared history that we need to continue. And, and as you said, John, to respect that this was that making a decision in the here and now has extremely positive repercussions for future generations. That's harder to do. And I think it's especially hard in a very polarized media environment where history itself has become a culture war bludgeon for both sides. Well, I think it's also part of this failure to tell the positive stories of the 20th century. You know, the 20th yeah. century is, of course, the most incarnating century uh, in history. Two horrific world wars, the Holocaust, the C Cambodian genocide. I mean, you could just, you know, go on and on and on with the horrors of the 20th century. And then you have the miracles of the 20th century, right? Air flight, uh, space flight, vaccinate, you know, the, the eradication of these diseases, advances in you know life expectancy advances in um advances in uh material well-being on and on and on and on and on and it is the nature of the american educational experiment of the last 40 or 50 years to dwell on the horrors and to soft pedal the successes you know in 1956 when or 55 whenever it was that jonas salk came up with the with the vaccine for polio, Jonas Salk instantly became one of the most famous people on the planet Earth. And a figure, the only comparable figure I can think of is he was a combination of Greta Thunberg and Fauci, but for the entire planet. And, you know, and, and, and famously Salk gave the polio vaccine to his own children first to make it clear that he believed that this vaccine was so safe that he could administer it to his own children. He was not Gretchen Whitmer partying while, while she locked everybody else down. She was not Gavin Newsom eating at the French laundry while everybody else was locked down. He was not, you know, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago going to wherever the hell she went to while the city was locked down. He gave the vaccine to his children first and that's where a guy like Josh our, our reader here has a point to make about the you know if there is a collective communal responsibility here the behavior of the elites in the United States toward that collective communal responsibility particularly the liberal elites has been appalling in the extreme and they are promoting, Christine talks about this all that, they promote the conspiracy theory against them. Not only with this action, but Fauci saying things like, I'm jacking up the numbers that we hit herd immunity because I want to, I want to, you know, I want to tweak people into doing what I think that they should be doing. That is the opposite of giving the vaccine to your children first. That's, I'm a guy sitting in an office, I'm a bureaucrat with a pair of glasses and a mask and, so, and a stethoscope, and I'm going to sit here and figure out how to make your life as difficult as possible to satisfy my imagined understanding of what it will take to end this vaccine, which, with only 63% of Americans having received one shot over the age of 18... All the evident indications we have right now are that we may have achieved herd immunity already, in which case this conversation is largely academic. But, but nonetheless, you know, we have the New York Times, which is a very liberal, has a very liberal estimation of the number of new cases. We now have three days in a row with cases at 11,000 or under. And as I keep saying, Fauci himself said that when, the, when we hit 10,000 or less, the pandemic is over. By the way, it's also the first time I've, I've just noticed this, that uh, we've had um, five days in a row with n the deaths below 500, um, which is... And considerably think, below yeah. 500. Three days where the deaths yeah. were below 200. Now, I mean, there's something gruesome about doing a body count like this. Uh, but of course, but, the, but the, that's it's just the truth. I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it would be far, far more gruesome to have... 3,000 uh, deaths a day, right. which, which we right. had at some point. Right. Um, John, I think there's another way in which the elites or at least elite institutions have um, 
they've not only um, given rise or, or contributed to the conspiracy theorizing, but something that we talk about a lot is we have seen um, institutions break down and be discredited and this broad incompetence um, of expert class, of the expert class sort of across the board, particularly in areas in the area of public health um, and the sciences and the mixing of politics with the sciences and health policy. Um, and there's been many massive mistakes. Forget um, the, the hypocrisy, but um, just, the, just the, the degree of incompetence we've seen that I think has given a lot of people reason to say, why am I trusting this? These these people exactly, um, you know, I, I I we're in an age where anyone can sort of marshal a lot of data and say this is why you, you should and this is why you shouldn't, and that itself is also sort of confusing because there's you you sort of lose your orientation. You have no you know you don't you end up not knowing where the where the sort of demonstrable truth is. I think you also have a perfect storm of the last twenty years that that came together on the right. I'll give you just a, a few a few examples, right? Um, uh, libertarians started getting concerned about public surveillance, pretty much sort of with the, the coming of the internet, but um, uh, cro- cross Atlantic stuff, uh, uh, CCTVs in, in 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 London. You know, basically, there's almost nowhere in London where you can go where you are not being filmed. Um, and uh, I started hearing about this as, you know, the new big brother, really in the early 2000s. Most of us know about this from crime shows, right? I mean, this is now this is now just a fantastic detail on crime shows, right? Where it's like uh, they, they can find out, they can move the plot forward by saying there's CCTV footage of something or other. And so you can see someone's head from behind and that like advances the plot. But, but that was that was one thing. And then you have a whole bunch of other kinds of general surveillance issues, including cookies, computers. You know, Christine is one of those people who put it, who put tape over the over the uh, right over your yes, um, over the built-in laptop camera. built-in yes. camera yes. and stuff like that. Okay, so so there's that, and then add to this in the health concern a huge fight people now may may have forgotten from the early parts of the twenty teens over the HPV vaccine. So um, if you remember this, so the HPV vaccine is a protection against cervical uh, cancer. And it was determined that people, that it should be administered to 12-year-olds. Why? Because cervical cancer is often the result of intercourse. And so the idea was, or there's some, can, I, I don't understand exactly how it's- And it's how two it's, shots. It's two shots. You have to get one dose and then you get another dose later. Right. Okay. So I don't understand. I don't remember. I read about it. But I don't understand the connection to being sexually active and cervical cancer. But nonetheless, so the idea was you administer this before girls become sexually active and you protect- you protect them against cervical cancer, which will and emerge. Boys. And boys. And boys. I'm sorry. Because boy, it's it's one of the the reason it's important to to vaccinate before right. most kids become sexually active is that it doesn't have symptoms. But it, in women, if they get HPV through through sexual activity, there are no symptoms, but it can start. Uh, it can prompt later cancers. So right. That's, like that was cancers, the idea. like like thirty years later. Right. Right. Okay. So. So a mandate was put in place in certain states that people should be, that kids should get mandatory HPV vaccines. And, um, and what was interesting about this was Texas is actually, there was a man, there was going to be a mandate. This became a huge political fight in Texas. Why? Because, um, uh, people who oppose premarital sex and are uh, were a- sort of activists against sexual activity in adolescence said that this was an implicit not only acceptance of the fact that teenagers have sex, but was in fact some form of implicit promotion of premarital and adolescent sex and that the government was putting its finger on the scale on the idea that this is something that will happen therefore it's something that should happen therefore it was contributing to a a moral decline so obviously this is something that a bunch of evangelical christians felt and then it was taken up by certain 
activists on the right, Michelle Malkin and others, who said that this was a kind of fascist effort to impose a radical new sexual ideology on America's teenagers. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that, which is I am more sympathetic to this idea than I might be sounding. You know, like I think that the idea that that you hand out condoms to teenagers as a public policy matter is horrendous and horrific and does suggest a kind of promotion of sexual activity that it is not the government's business to be involved in and and various other things. But this was this was something else, and it also flew in the face of everything we know about humanity from time immemorial, which is to say, teenagers do have sex. I'm sorry. Like, you know, half the people born on the planet Earth, more than half the people born on the planet Earth until the year 1900 were born to teenagers. It's not the fact that we delay or that we wish to delay marriage to people uh, until they have attained their political majorities and all of that is a is an unnatural feature of our of our contemporary democracy and our contemporary life. The idea that this isn't going to happen flies in the face of everything that we you know that we know about human nature and humankind. Even though I'm sympathetic to the idea that the government shouldn't promote it, but if you add the surveillance state fears to the to this idea that government is promoting and that the liberal health public health culture was promoting uh, morally depraved uh, personal conduct through the use of mandatory vaccination, you start seeing the background to the perfect storm that this moment when suddenly it was said, everybody in this country needs to get vaccinated right now. And in fact, if, 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 if the emergency authorization could have been approved for everybody from ages zero to, to 100 in the first place, it would have been, let's start with children first, right? We got to start with the very old and children first and all of this. And we haven't had that fight yet because it's not been approved for anybody under 12. Um, but there, there's a whole background to this. And we have to sort of take account of the fact that this is the end of a 20-year conversation and not the beginning. I, I think all that's true. And I think we've we've like been very fair here about pulling out the various strands of legitimate concern about the vaccine and the reasons why these concerns might arise. At the same time, I have to say, given where we're at historically, I think that even without the HPV issue, um, without the the hypocrisy of the elites, without the... um, uh, incompetence of institutions, we would still be facing some sort of significant um, anti-vax, anti-COVID vax movement because it is also a piece of the larger anti-vaccine movement, which has been gaining speed for a few decades now. And according to them, if you're a real anti-vaxxer, you think Jonas Salk was a fraud. You 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 think that that that, that caused uh, polio or something. You think Louis Pasteur was a fraud. You don't even believe in the in the germ theory of disease. Well, we've been talking primarily about the rights, um, weird hangups and predilections yeah. here. Um, but there's sort of an unspoken truth that the left is unwilling to acknowledge. And that's something that frustrates you to no end, John, which is the notion that a lot of people believe that they don't have to get this vaccine because they can free ride off everyone else who does. And the truth of the matter is, they're right. They can. That we don't need everyone to get vaccinated. That herd immunity is a threshold that no one really knows when it arrives, but it doesn't doesn't arrive at 100%. It's much lower than that. And a certain portion of this population can afford to not get vaccinated and, and live off the responsibility of the rest of us. The left will not acknowledge that. Because to acknowledge that is to accept the fact that there's a certain portion of this population that does not accept its communitarian responsibilities. And there is a certain portion of this population that doesn't accept their communitarian responsibilities. And that's something that they will have to begrudgingly accept because it's also part of the fabric of the American DNA, the American experiment, that individualism that sometimes isn't all that great, but is nevertheless responsible for a lot more good than it is bad. Variants. That's it. That's the word. The word is variants, right? Everything you say is true. And then what they'll say is variants. 
This is all true, and you can achieve herd immunity against the specific coronavirus that is vaccinated against, and there is data so far to suggest that that these vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer in particular, are extraordinarily effective not only against the first strain, but against the, the two variant strains that have arisen since. But we don't know that it will be effective against the eighth variant strain. And therefore, unless everybody gets vaccinated and doesn't get the first two, they won't get the eighth. Whatever. I mean, that that is that is the scare word, right? Is variants. Variants, 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 variants. Um, I just think it's a it's a world in which if you are not somebody who is afraid of and by the way, we haven't even talked about uh, the real reason that people are vaccine hesitant, which of course is autism and the uh, and the the har the the horrors of Andrew Wakefield, the British a disgraced British scientist doctor who in, who made up the study that said that vaccines cause autism, um, a person who you know I, I think history uh, may well record as one of the great monsters of 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 the modern era. Um, one article in the Lancet that gave rise to the to vaccine hesitancy as an ongoing concern when it was a freakish, small, weird world of holistic, you know, types, sort of people who thought that it was bad that there was fluoride in the water in the 1950s. This then became a very mainstream idea. A lot of people believe it. People who have kids who are autistic can't get over the idea. We had a president of the United States in Trump um, who was very sympathetic to the idea um, without ever, you know, explicitly saying that he was an anti-vaxxer. You know, all of that, it's not entirely the, the doing of one guy because he emerged himself from a world that looked at you know big science in this way, but that's a that's a that's a, a huge thing. A lot of this, by the way, goes to issues of risk science, how to measure risk, how to calculate risk, and you know that's something that we have to do every day when we're thinking about our money and our investments and all that. And that's why you want to go to dividendcafe.com and subscribe to David Bonson's newsletter, daily newsletter, Dividend Cafe. Um, because he uh, not only offers a granular view of the day's uh, financial activities at, at at day's close around six or seven p.m., you get it uh, dropped in into your into your uh, email box. Um, so he tells you what happened that day, how the markets moved, what it meant. But um, but much of what he writes about, uh, and he manages three billion dollars in you know investor capital. Uh, in a, a, a very wildly successful financial management server by by coastal firm in California and New York, um, is trying to assess uh, the risks of inflation, the risks of government action, the risks of the Fed um, being uh, activist or or not activist enough, the risks of um, the risks of deflation and uh, what what mar- the interplay of markets and government and what that will do when you are trying to assess what to do with your money to hedge your losses on the downside and to advance your interests on the upside. That's DividendCafe.com from David Bonson and the Bonson Group. Subscribe today. Um, so I think I'm, so we, we just said, right, that uh, that uh, New York Times has 10,000 cases today. Sun, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, they were they were at five or 6,000. The, their numbers are very, are generally speaking, um, they they count more um, liberally than other counters. Like I look at the Johns Hopkins COVID tracker every night. Uh, Abe is a fan of Worldometer um, uh, to look at things. No matter how you slice it, we are now around ten thousand cases a day uh, with this low death toll. Um, New York yesterday, Cuomo announced with great fanfare. This was a momentous day because he was lifting uh, all restrictions on social distancing and masking and all of that that were in his power, leaving in place the need to mask on public transportation, subways, car services, um, and by the way, in schools because, of course, uh, you know, children are killers. They're killers. They're, they're they could kill you. If they breathe on you without a mask. Um, but to be fair to him, he said that he had to hew to larger CDC guidelines, federal guidelines, 
that he could not comfortably lift himself, though, of course, if this were the Trump administration, I'm sure he would have been happy to lift them. Um, so uh, the pandemic is over. And I don't think uh, the question that we were uh, talking about before the show started was, why isn't Biden saying it's over yet? Uh, are we waiting? I mean, we said this yesterday, like, where's Fauci? Fauci has gone to ground, as Noah pointed out. Um, Actually, yes, he's back. Oh, he is? Oh. He has emerged from his hiding hole this morning. <clears throat> we summoned him. He made an appearance on CBS this morning where he said the following, quote, We've always said that we would keep an open mind and contribute to look. So I think that's a bit of a distortion to say we deliberately suppressed that, which he's to which he's referring to the lab leak theory. Um the Washington Examiner's Beckett Adams uh, smartly surfaced uh, May 2020 quote from uh, Dr. Fauci in which he said the following, quote, if you look at the evolution of the virus in bats, what's out there now, the scientific evidence is very, very strongly leaning toward that this could be and could, could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. So while he did not close the window on it, he was very disparaging of this theory. And the notion that they kept an entirely open mind to it uh, is historical revisionism. And it's a really probably a sign of things to come, a bad sign of things to come, that this institution, the public health bureaucracy, will be loath to admit their mistakes, their assumptions that are predicated on, da- on, on faulty data, erroneous beliefs that nevertheless arose from a place of authority and scholarship. Um, which contributes to exactly what we're talking about here, a real reticence to acknowledge legitimate, honest mistakes um, that is going to only contribute to people's mistrust of this overweening bureaucracy. I think this is a, a brilliant point, and it gets to something interesting uh, in a larger uh, context, which is that, you know, right after 9-11, it took no very, very little time after 9-11. In fact, it took until 2002, really, in some ways. For people to say, Bush should have known, right? Bush should have known, and he didn't know. Why didn't he know? Why didn't they know it was coming? Where were the da, 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 right? And then someone surfaced the memo, uh, the daily uh, presidential daily briefing that said Al Qaeda determined to attack inside the U.S., which was which came out on August sixth, two thousand and one, thirty five days before nine eleven, or thirty six days before nine eleven. And uh, the left instantly said, or liberals instantly said, you see, they knew it was coming and they didn't do anything. Like something that says Al-Qaeda determined to attack inside the U.S. provided actionable intelligence. Um, uh, then there was the whole thing about how Flight 93 was deliberately sh- was shot down, right? There was a, there's a whole other argument, right? Flight 93 was deliberately shot down. Dick Cheney gave the order. We'll never know because... They felt they had to do it because the plane was headed toward the Capitol, was going to blow up the Capitol, uh, and we shot it down. And then as time goes on, uh, the utter chaos of that morning becomes ever more clear. We remember the chaos of that morning, but I mean, it, but the fact that they didn't even know where 93, no one knew what anything was going on. Half the communications, uh, you know, in the Northeast were, had been disrupted or destroyed and nobody knew anything, and they were Bush was in a classroom in Sarasota and was hustled to a you know an unknown location and all this and this idea that they could have staged you know an an, an operation uh, to take down a civilian aircraft liner by scrambling jets and shooting it down you know with twenty minutes notice was delusional but sort of understandable at the time. Uh, one of the great public, uh, one of the great political science works of the 20th century uh, by um, by Wallstetter was uh, about uh, Pearl Harbor and the theory that we could, should have known that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. And this, of course, was one of the original conspiracy theories of the 20th century was that we did know, we let it happen in order to get us, get us into the war. And 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 the uh, his book, which I think is called Pearl Harbor Command and Decision, I can't remember the title of it, goes into very, very granular detail on how we had no idea because post facto, it seems very clear that everything the Japanese were doing was leading inexorably to Pearl Harbor. But you only know that by the fact that Pearl Harbor happened. You cannot accrete these details 
it into a narrative that says that on you know December fifth you should have known the Japanese were coming. Um, everything changes afterward, and this then becomes a calculation about everything that goes on forward about about surprise attacks. But that the notion that you have the knowledge beforehand that you had after is not clear. The lab leak hypothesis is the opposite of all of that because while this was going on, Tom Cotton said we need to look into the possibility that something happened at that lab and that something may have leaked inadvertently. He said it in February of 2020. In other words, the defense that can be made of our public health officials is this was an honest mistake. They've made honest mistakes. They they all they meant well, all of which I think is true. They meant well. They didn't want, you know, all of this. But but we did know that the lab leak hypothesis was a viable hypothesis because it was forwarded by viable people speaking viably about it contemporaneously, even before anybody died in the United States from the coronavirus. And yet they are going to get a pass or there is going to be a decade in which it is likely that this world of people who structured the idea that not only wasn't it true, but that it was wrong and evil to suggest that it was true because it was going to create discrimination against Asian people in the United States and because somehow it didn't blame the American government or Trump enough. I don't even know why. So, you know, it's a weird thing. They're going to take advantage of the imperfect knowledge uh, theories uh, promulgated by Albert and Roberta Wallstetter, and they're going to take they're going to take it forward when they don't have any justification for doing so whatsoever. Well, there's something else that's happening too in terms of real time narrative creation that we see going on. And I sent this uh, to you guys yesterday, but the AP did a story about the, the Biden administration's plans for July 4th, and it and it shows a lot of the ways in which uh, our kind of elite structure our understanding of what's going on with regard to the pandemic. And it said this, President Joe Biden wants to imbue Independence Day with new meaning this year by encouraging nationwide celebrations to mark the country's effective return to normalcy. The White House is expressing growing certainty that July 4th will serve as a breakthrough moment in the nation's recovery, even though the U.S. is expected to fall short of its goal of having 70 percent of adults vaccinated by the holiday. The planned celebration will be the largest event of Biden's presidency designed to demonstrate the nation's victory over the virus as cases drop and deaths drop to levels not seen since the first days of the outbreak. And it goes on and on with details about what will happen and about celebrating the resumption of pre-pandemic life. But I think this is this it goes some of the way towards answering the question we're asking today, which is when is this over? Well, it's over when the administration's planned July 4th celebration of pre-pandemic life return uh, occurs. And you can see we talked about this with regard to the negative messaging about the pandemic when the numbers showed otherwise before a lot of the uh, spending bills were passed that Biden wanted to see passed, the relief packages and whatnot. So there is this effort to kind of not allow good news to come out too soon because we need it as political capital, but the Biden administration feels it needs it as political capital to celebrate its own supposed victory and its own supposed policies. And people should treat that with the cynicism and disdain I hope our listeners can hear dripping from my voice because that is ridiculous way to approach a public health issue. And it's and it, it breeds cynicism. It really does. John, you have said that there is sort of this subconscious, uh, unspoken um, gratitude that will be bestowed on the Biden administration for m- exceeding its goals. Its goals, remember, according to Ron Klain, were small family gatherings in your backyard on July 4th, a goal that we reached, I think, in April, <laughs> because this has been ongoing for quite some time. And I, you know, his job approval ratings are what they are. They're still pretty stable and high. And he's got these way above water to the tune of an average of, say, seven points. But they haven't really budged. And there's no evidence that this this is having any effect on how people perceive the Biden administration. But I cannot imagine that Christine's wrong. I cannot imagine that this administration undershooting not just objective reality, but um, cosseting itself in really easy to meet thresholds, lowering a bar such that you could trip over it, isn't having a cumulative effect. I'm saving my cynicism and um, annoyance for when this happens, July 4th, and 
the media join in in the celebration and congratulation on how the administration understood the scope of the virus and the and the pandemic and set itself this goal and achieved it then then i will let it let it all flow i um i think it's an interesting fact uh, that uh, they want to use July 4th to celebrate the end of the pandemic because, of course, July 4th is already a celebration of something else that they are clearly increasingly uncomfortable celebrating, which is the independence of the United States and the, uh, you know, uh, the glory of the American experiment. Um, we're, of course, now a systemically racist country uh, born in, in evil, uh, well, 1776 is a trigger word now for a lot of the left, right. right? Right. And therefore, you know, instead of it being Independence Day, it could be Pandemic Day. That's great. That's a that's a uh, that gives them uh, that gives Biden the right to talk about something other than the glories of America on July 4th, which of course he's not allowed to talk about without saying, you know, we're full of sin and we're really terrible and we're we got to fix all these all these problems uh, that just occurred to me as, as no, as you were speaking um, that uh, this is like, gives them an out because God knows how you're supposed to write a, an independence date, a proclamation as president of the United States uh, when you're, when Ilhan Omar, um, you know, is a, is a great Patriot uh, and, uh, and you celebrate her clarifications uh, of her antisemitism uh, the way that uh, uh, people uh, have been doing. Um, all right, look, are you still going to the post office? Still paying, paying full price for postage? Stop. Thanks to stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime right from your computer. Send lettership packages. Pay less, a lot less, with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. It brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates, up to 66% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. It's a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. So stop wasting time. Go to the post office. Use Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in commentary. That's stamps.com, promo code commentary, and never go to the post office again. All right, look. I just want to say this again. When are they... If they're going to say that the pandemic is over on July 4th, when it's over on June 15th, uh, what does that tell you about them? Uh, it says in some ways that they are thuddingly unimaginative, that they have no improvisatory capacity. I'm not saying that Biden gets up and says the pandemic is over. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he has a meeting in the White House when he gets back from his idiot summit. And he sits down and he says, uh, I want the CDC to lift the guidance rules should lift the guidance rules. Let's get going. Every day that passes where we have breaks on the economy or we have shackles on the ankles of, you know, what, however few people are still following all the rules, whatever, however you want to slice it, we got to get rid of them right now because time is a wasting. And, you know, we're, you know, the notion that you sort of time these things to political events and political realities, um, that's not the way it's supposed to work. No one's going to surrender. There's no Japanese empire that's going to formally surrender. There's no Appomattox. There's no end of the hostilities from the virus. Um, you don't have a don't have a date certain to end anything. It's just done. And and there was a guide part. There was a guidepost. The guidepost was under ten thousand cases. We will be there by next Monday. We will have had a week of it around that number or under by next Monday, which would be the 21st of June, any day after the 21st of June where we're still theoretically living under the sort of the guidance of the CDC about how we are supposed to behave and what we are supposed to be doing, particularly children, will be an act of governmental infamy, in my view. 
Anybody want to make the contrary case? This is the problem with not having one of these, like, you know, balanced panels where we all disagree. Come on, somebody say something. Well, 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 look, the thing is, yes, the administration is thuddingly unimaginative, and there's every reason to be cynical about the way they're doing this. There are, on the other hand, people out there sort of, you know, social media science figures and, and, and actual people in the media writing articles for, for um, you know, um, august publications, still saying things like, we're, we're still headed for a, another spike. We still have a problem coming. This, the Delta variant is bad, and, it's, and vaccines are less effective against it. And it is still, we, we would still be rash to do to 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 open up, and they, at least some of them, mean it still. And that that to me, in a way, um, is more destructive than what the administration's up to, because that works on people after after a year plus of this. Um, there, people feed on that and sort of enrich their fear, um, and and the, the perpetual fear mongers here um, are are really the worst. It really puts a bad taste in your mouth, and that's why you need Quip to mouthwash. How's that for a transition? Because, look, we all love that clean, minty, fresh feeling you get from mouthwash, but we don't like those plastic mouthwash bottles, right? They're big, they're bulky, they're kind of ugly. That's probably why a lot of us end up stashing them under the sink. And, you know, when they're under the sink, you forget they're there. It's pretty hard to kill germs or help prevent cavities when you got to reach under, pull it up, and hurt your back and hit the, the bottom of the sink and everything. So luckily, the oral care experts at Quip created an alcohol-free mouthwash that keeps your mouth healthy without the burn. And thanks to its sleek, refillable dispenser, which is sitting right on my desk as we speak, it's pretty easy on the eyes, too. Mouthwash hasn't changed in 140 years. Most brands are still selling those big, bulky bottles mostly full of water and alcohol. But the oral care experts at Quip created a mouthwash that gives you more of the ingredients you need and left of the stuff that already comes out of your faucet. Plus, their alcohol-free, four-times concentrated mouthwash comes in an eco-friendly refill bottle that's 100% recyclable. It's, a way, it's their way of helping make your mouth feel a little cleaner and the earth a little greener. Okay, so Quip mouthwash kills bad breath germs, helps prevent cavities, leaves a feeling fresh, Thanks to a formula that gives your mouth everything it needs and nothing it doesn't, that four times concentrate has fluoride, xylitol, and CPC, but they left out the artificial colors and stinging alcohol you'll find in a lot of other rinses. And the refillable dispenser's compact footprint will fill it, fit in any bathroom, big or small, with five colors and two high-end finishes to choose from. You're guaranteed to find a dispenser that matches your style. This is one mouthwash. You won't want to hide under the sink. It's good for your mouth, good for the planet, and that four times concentrated formula means Quip ships less water and more good for you ingredients. Uh, add a mouthwash refill plan and make sure your rinse never runs out. With a customizable subscription, you can get refills automatically delivered straight to your whole door every three months. You can stay on top of your swish without lugging any bottles home from the store. How refreshing. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary five, that's commentary and the number five right now, you can get $5 off a mouthwash starter kit. That's 5 bucks off a mouthwash starter kit, which includes a refillable dispenser and a 90-dose supply of Quip's four times concentrated formula at getquip.com slash commentary5, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary5, Quip, the good habits company. So I guess tomorrow we will talk about whatever it is that came out of this uh, summit with... Uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin, but I, I, I think it's worth saying in general that this uh, first uh, trip of, uh, of Biden's abroad uh, featured, uh, on the one hand, you could say that it was a success because it did not feature anything like him touching the orb in Saudi Arabia that we still have no idea what on earth was going on with the, that orb, what that orb was, what happened when they touched it. And, 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 you know, uh, I don't know why no one's made a horror movie about that or, you know, aliens possessing everybody by touching the orb, whatever. Um, You've erased from your memory the actual worst diplomatic display of the Trump presidency, which was his one, not one, but two summits with Kim Jong-un. Well, that was great. They, they had a love. They sent each other letters. 
It was beautiful. It was like journalists like, were. Uh, it was like the notes. They were like, they were like in yeah. the DMZ. Yeah, they were like Abelard and Eloise, and I, I, I will leave it to you to wonder which one ended up as Abelard. Uh, for those of you who know the Abelard and Eloise story, anyway, um, uh, it was just beautiful. But of course, and of course, there was no. Uh, uh, remember, Obama tried to get. Who is it that Obama wanted? We wanted the, he wanted the Olympics for Chicago. He made like a, a trip to Europe to get the Olympics for Chicago. What the hell was that about? <laughs> Am I remembering correctly? He yes, actually yes. right. Okay. I think it was Denmark. He went to Denmark to get a to get a to get Europeans to agree to to get them to have the Olympics in Chicago. Really tells you how much the Nobel Peace Prize is worth. <laughs> So, I don't know, Biden didn't do either of those things, any of those things. So maybe you want to count it a huge success. I don't know. Uh, but we'll talk about it tomorrow. So thanks for listening for Abe, Christina, No, And thanks to Josh for his really wonderful letter. Uh, Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.